on uh, the kingdom covenants. And we're not going to talk about every covenant in Scripture. There's several that we will we will uh, not cover, and yet there's going to be five particular covenant covenants related to God's kingdom program that we're going to cover. And I guess if I can say it this way, I'm, I'm not necessarily apologetic, and yet I do feel a, a tinge of, of um, guilt's not the word either, but I recognize that this morning was a little bit more luxury, and tonight's going to be a little bit more luxury as well. And I try, particularly when I have these luxury sermons, to not pack them together. But with the family conference coming up, it's just kind of the way things fell. So tonight is going to be uh, a lot of scripture, and we're going to be we're going to be looking into scripture. It's not going to go into history again, but at the same time, there's going to be a little bit less expounding on the Word of God and a little bit more just teaching concepts related to the Word of God. So last week, as I mentioned, we walked through the first 17 verses of Second Samuel 7, and we considered David's desire to build a house for God and God's rejection of that offer not because he was unwilling to have a house, but because of the character of David's life to that point. Not that he had bad character, but that he was a bloody man. He was a man, a warrior, and God wanted his house to be associated with that of peace. God, in turn, however, in his mercy and in his love, made a very important promise to David, which would be a foundational element of the life and ministry of Messiah, Jesus Christ. This promise has become known as the Davidic Covenant, and it's one of many covenants in the Bible which we would do well to understand, not simply in their content, but also in their connection one to another. And that's going to be our goal over these next two weeks. We're actually not going to get to the Davidic Covenant this week. We'll get there next week. But what I hope throughout these two weeks will take place is that by understanding these milestones, these covenants that God has made with man throughout human history, we can better understand God's overarching plan, our relationship as God's church to it, and our relationship as individuals in the church to that plan. Now, as I say this, we need to make an important point here that I am not teaching what is known as covenant theology. Covenant theology is, is a approach to interpreting scripture whereby you interpret the Bible through the covenants, breaking them up into covenants of works and covenants of grace. Covenant theology sees the Old Testament covenants of grace leading up to Messiah and the New Testament as, as the establishment of the final covenant of grace through Messiah. Now, as we talk about the, this idea, we don't really have a, an argument with the biblical, uh, biblical argument with these ideas that, that the covenants in the Old Testament and the New Testament were covenants of grace, and, and they, they would break up the covenant of works as being that which was uh, through to, to the time where Adam fell to sin, and then there would need to be covenants of grace. Um, there, there are various nuances of difference, some larger, some smaller. But what, I, what I'm trying to emphasize as I jump into the message this evening is that I'm not teaching this evening what, what is known as covenant theology just because we are focusing on the covenants. One of the greatest distinctions between what we believe 
and what a covenant theologian would believe. There's, like I said, there's many nuances, but one of the greatest distinctions is how we view Israel. We just read a letter from missionary Bergman and uh, him talking about going up to uh, Israeli people and saying we we love the Jews and we, we stand with Israel. Covenant theology doesn't see God, God's dealings over time as being different. Uh, he's simply working from covenant to covenant. To that end, the covenant theologian sees the church as effectively a continuation of Israel so that all the promises that God made to Israel as a nation in the Old Testament simply kind of flow from Israel into the church so that the church inherits every promise that was given to Israel. Consequently, the nation of Israel today to the covenantal theologian is out of the picture. Nothing That God has nothing to do with them. Their time was then. Now God's promises have flowed have flowed into the church, and the church has all of those promises. Israel is done and gone. We don't see it that way. As we study the scriptures, we tend to lean toward what we would call a dispensational framework, and these are just labels. Uh, some people reject the labels, and that's fine. I don't, I don't have any, um, any loyalty to the label of dispensationalism or the label of covenant theology. We have a loyalty to the truths of God's word. And with notable exception of a, of a particular group of people who claim to be dispensational but also claim that God has finished their program with Israel, they're called replacement theologians. Within this framework of dispensationalism, we largely believe that God has worked through different people groups and that the promises which he made to the na nation of Israel on a national level remain with Israel, and they are to be fulfilled according to God's will and in God's time. So covenant theology interprets the Bible through the covenants, as we've mentioned, and we don't really necessarily have an argument with recognizing the covenants. You can see up there a little bit of a, of a timeline. So covenant theology, they see a works-based system until Adam's sin, then they see a grace-based system and several covenants, and they're all grace-based. And one covenant simply replaces the next. Grace in the, through Abraham, grace through Noah, grace through David, grace through the new covenant and Messiah. Dispensationalism recognizes, and it depends on who you talk to, five, six, seven, eight, two, three, different dispensations. We trace his, history not through God's promises to mankind, but rather through how God has chosen to interact with mankind. We see God as first interacting with mankind personally. Adam and Eve were in unconfirmed holiness. And the way God interacted with man in that time was different because they, they were without sin. They were in unconfirmed holiness. And then after Adam's fall, we believe that God began working through the conscience of man. That, that as the law of God written on the heart of man, that through man's conscience, he was expected to do right. And then after that, uh, through the patriarchs, who each represented their and they represented, uh, they were representatives unto their families before God. Some people, um, excuse me, gov government and patriarchs ought to be flipped on that. I apologize for that. Should be government next, right? After Noah's day, God instituted government, and then the patriarchs, um, and then the Mosaic law, and God working in the world through the Mosaic law, and then the 
Holy Spirit after the New Covenant, and then finally in the Millennial Kingdom. And in each one of these, what we would call dispensations, we see God working in, a, in the same, with the same character, but in a different manner in response to the position of man to him, in response to the revelation that he has given to them. We believe in what's called progressive revelation, that God has, over time, given more revelation, and with each element of revelation he's given, there's greater accountability, and God begins to expect more from, a, from man as he gives them more information, they are held accountable for that information. So these are all concepts, and this is how we interpret the word of God. In each of these dispensations, God deals with men under different, what we'd say, operational principles, but always with the same expectations, consistent with God's unchanging character. And I mentioned already that one of the, the largest uh, distinctions is with how covenant theologians see God's dealings with Israel. Now, one of the more important concepts that needs to be mentioned before we consider the covenants themselves is the difference between a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant. The concept is actually quite basic. It will be very familiar for most adults today as you have likely entered into each of these in some form. A conditional covenant, the text tells us, and Matt, if you could flip to the next one, I skipped some stuff there. Uh, thank you. Uh, a conditional covenant is a covenant between two parties where the outcome of the covenant is dependent upon actions or circumstances. So a conditional covenant means that conditions must be met in order for the agreed-upon results to take place. We typically call these contracts, right? Contracts. Uh, this past weekend was the NFL draft. Some people follow it, some people just plain don't care. But it's a good example of a conditional covenant that these players are are entering into a contract where they will play and, and they will play for compensation. And oftentimes, uh, these, these contracts in, in sports uh, might have performance guarantees that you will get more money if you perform better. You will get less money if you don't hit certain milestones. So this is a two-way contract where each person has to uphold their end of the bargain. I pay you, you play for me. And we get into these things all of the time. Two people enter into the agreement. Each side promises to fulfill their end of the agreement and, and that they fulfill it to the agreed upon sta <coughs> excuse me, standard. Now, in our society, which is, is relatively dishonorable, contracts don't mean much anymore. But the idea of a contract is the same as a conditional covenant. Benefits are promised, but made conditional upon certain actions or circumstances. You do this, you get this. You don't do this, you don't get that. An unconditional covenant is very different. An unconditional covenant is a covenant between two parties where the outcome of the covenant is guaranteed regardless of actions and regardless of circumstances. We would see this in the NFL as well. There's guaranteed contracts. A great example of this, though, uh, an example which perhaps all of us could relate to better is marriage. It's an unconditional covenant. A man and a woman get in front of witnesses and they make their marriage vows. And these vows traditionally are unconditional in nature. 
the man stands up and he looks his bride-to-be in the eyes and he vows to her his love and his faithfulness regardless of circumstances and actions, right? For better or worse, in sickness and health, for richer or poorer, those are intended to express the lack of conditions upon which that man and that woman's love and devotion have. That regardless of circumstances, I will pour my love and I will rest my faithfulness upon you. That's the marriage vow. Now the man doesn't say, as long as you have dinner ready every night when I get home, I will love you and be faithful to you. The woman doesn't say, as long as you make so much a year, I will love and be faithful to you. There aren't conditions upon the covenant. Now, today, again, in society, that's not we don't have great examples of that, right? Because society has effectively made marriage a conditional covenant. You uphold your end or I'm out. I uphold my end or you're out. But that's not what is said at the marriage altar. And that's not the design in marriage. Marriage is designed to be an unconditional covenant covenant that regardless of the conditions of our life after this vow my vow will stand I will love you I will be faithful unto you and today we're going to consider five major covenants in the Bible these are not by any means all of the covenants or even all of the major covenants in the Bible but the five covenants we consider, what I, I'll call them, and this is not an official label, but what I will call them is kingdom covenants. Covenants that God made with people, which are milestones in God's kingdom program, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And we've talked about the concept of a kingdom before. A kingdom is when a man has a right to rule, he has a realm over which to rule, and he exercises his right to rule over that realm. If a man has a realm, but he doesn't rule over it, then by definition he doesn't have a kingdom. He may have, he may have a, a realm, but he's not exercising his authority. If a man has a realm, but he has no authority, then he has no kingdom. If a man has authority, or claims authority, but he has no one over which to rule... I can claim that I have authority over all of the ants and call the ants my kingdom, but when I look at an ant and say, ant, why don't you go get me a bottle of water, the ant's not going to do it, because though I might claim that that realm, I don't have the authority to do anything about it. So a kingdom is when a man has, a, has the authority to rule, he has a realm over which to rule, and then he's exercising his authority over that realm. Throughout the course of history, we find God progressively revealing his sovereign authority over his creation. And as he does so, he establishes kingdom conditions. We talked about progressive revelation already. God is progressively revealing how much authority he has. And as, with, with each step in God's program, as mankind receives conditions, receives uh, expectations from God, God shows himself as ruling over this creation. The scriptures reveal that all of history will culminate in God having a kingdom. 
He will have a group of people over which he will rule, who will have accepted his authority, will be a part of that kingdom if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior will still acknowledge his authority, but they'll be cast into eternal separation from God and through his kingdom, eternal destruction. So that at the end of, the, of history, the scriptures tell us every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Those who submitted themselves will live with Christ forever. Those who rejected will suffer that eternal faith in hell. Now, in opposition to this kingdom that God is, is, is establishing, that kingdom which in the future will be completely set up the way God has intended, is Satan. And Satan is actively engaged in his effort to establish his own kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom. Satan has asserted his right to rule, hasn't he? He said, I will elevate myself, I will become God. I will exalt myself in the heavens. He has asserted his authority to rule. And he's asserted a realm over which to rule. He secured that realm the day he led Adam and Eve into sin. On that day, when Adam and Eve fell to sin, he found himself a realm over which to rule. And the battle today is over exercising that right. As Satan attempts to exercise his right to rule over the realm, and God is redeeming people out of that darkness. Men and women are born into the kingdom of Satan, but God is actively calling men out of that kingdom into the kingdom of God through his redemptive work. And these covenants are an unfolding of God's redemptive work, an unfolding of his kingdom program. And the events of 2 Samuel 7, as we learned about them last week, they are one of the key Old Testament passages to this redemptive work and to God's kingdom program as it unfolds. The Davidic covenant is a kingdom milestone. So I told you last week that we were preaching a very important passage of scripture, but we weren't really digging into the importance of it. This week we're going to be digging more so into the importance of it and we're going to lay the foundation of God's relationship to these covenants and our relationship to these covenants. So let's walk through them together, and my hope is that you'll gain a better understanding of God's dealings with men as you see how uh, God has dealt with them in the past and then how it affects us today. So the first kingdom covenant which we consider this evening is what we often will call the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant is spoken particularly in Genesis 12, but it's actually established in Genesis 15, where we read in verses, uh, we read in verses, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in me shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Uh, up till this point in Genesis chapter 12, we knew nothing of this man Abraham. We simply read the Lord initiating a promise to this man. The promise contains three elements, a personal promise, a national promise, and a universal promise. The personal promise, God says, I will make of thee a great nation. 
excuse me, the national promise, I will make of thee a great nation. The personal promise, he says, and I will bless thee. And then the universal promise, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. At this point, God had not actually made a covenant with Abraham. He'd only made conditional promises. These promises were conditioned upon his obedience. And we see that there. God said, Abraham, get up, get out of Ur of the Chaldees, and go to a land that I'll tell you. If you do this, I will do these things for you. So we see conditional promises made. Abraham does what he's told. He gets up, he goes to Haran, he ends up leaving Haran and coming down to the land of Canaan. However, when he got to the land of Canaan, he left pretty quickly. He got there and he found that there was a famine in the land. So he up and left Canaan and he went down to Egypt where he got himself into a little bit of trouble because of dishonesty, uh, telling the Pharaoh that his wife was his sister so that uh, he would not be killed because he believed he might be killed because his wife was so beautiful. Ends up, that all gets worked out, and then he goes back to the land of Canaan. So when he finally establishes himself in the land of Canaan, once he's finally there, once he has finally obeyed the word of the Lord and established himself in the land that God has promised, now God can actually covenant with him. God can covenant with him because he is where he's supposed to be. He did what he needed to do. He was obedient through these conditional promises. And now it's time for the covenant. And we read this in Genesis chapter 15. We read in verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward the heaven, and tell the stars that thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So Abraham is back in the land, and he's discouraged, because God has promised to bless him, to make him a great nation, to bless the whole world through him, but he has no child, and his wife isn't having children. So God appears to him to encourage him. And the word that he gives here is fear not. He says, I am your shield and your reward. Abraham questions this. He says, Lord, you say that you're my shield, you're my reward, you've given me all these promises, but I have no child. All I have is an heir who's my servant. To which God promises that he will have a child, a child that will come from his own blood, and that this child, he says, look into the stars. If you can count the stars, that's how many your seed will be. That will be the number of your descendants. And the text tells us here that Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. And note that. That God is making a covenant with Abraham. And the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God. We find here established one of the most important elements of the kingdom covenants. That these covenants are appropriated, are accepted by faith. Though the covenants themselves, we will see, are unconditional in nature, they cannot come into effect in God's divine plan until 
the person that God is promising it to accepts it by faith. And once the recipient accepts the terms of the covenant by faith, in other words, saying, God, you're going to do it, I, I believe you, then all of the blessings of that unconditional covenant can be poured out. So at the beginning of Genesis 15, we see Abraham believes God. And later on in the chapter, we find the covenant ceremony actually take place. In verse 7 of Genesis 15, God commands Abraham to take an heifer, a she-goat, a ram, and two pigeons, and to divide them upon a hill half on each side. Of course, he didn't divide the pigeons in half. That's why he chose two of them, because the pigeons were pretty small. Dividing them in half wouldn't go all that well. So you take these animals, and they were supposed to cut them in half, and then let all of their blood pool into the middle of a trough. Now, in, in the typical way that a covenant went, what would happen is after they had cut these animals and pooled the blood into the trough, they would recite the terms of the covenant. This man would recite his terms. This man would recite their terms. And then they would together walk through the blood. And this was the most, the most um, potent or the most powerful covenant that a person could make. There were other covenants. One of them involved giving a shoe. One of them involved uh, spitting. Uh, but this covenant, this particular covenant, was the most powerful, the most binding of covenants. So God commands Abraham to set this whole thing up with the expectation that they would both walk through and then they would each have to uphold their end of the bargain. But something happens that night. The text tells us that that night, Abraham had spent all day chasing the buzzards, making sure that nothing was touched until God was ready. The scriptures tell us that night, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. And while he was asleep, God himself told Abraham, he reiterated the promises of God to Abraham, and then he himself and him alone walked through the blood. He promised the land of Canaan to be Abraham's. He promised the seed, and then he walked through the blood. Abraham never walked through it. And what this represents is an unconditional covenant where God alone walked through the blood because God was telling Abraham that there were no conditions upon which Abraham would receive everything that God promised to him. Abraham appropriated the promises by faith, and so God made this unconditional covenant. He said, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. No exceptions. No conditions. God assumed 100% of the responsibility for fulfilling these promises, and Abraham had no obligation in return. And so we see the Abrahamic covenant to be a literal, eternal, unconditional covenant. Contained in these, this covenant are promises of that, uh, that God would give to Abraham. The land of Canaan being promised to Abraham. A seed being promised that is greater than the stars of heaven, and then a blessing that through him all the world would be blessed. It's important to note that this covenant was unconditional in nature. The land, the seed, the blessing were promised to Abraham by God, sealed with a covenant of blood, apart from any conditions placed upon Abraham by faith alone. 
Now, Abraham does eventually um, have this promised child. His name is Isaac. And God commands that Isaac and every male that was born into the family following Isaac would assume the sign of the covenant called circumcision. God told Abraham in Genesis 17, 7 through uh, 14, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, in the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations, he that is born in the house, or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. God institutes a physical sign, which is intended to be the sign of the covenant between God and the physical lineage of Abraham. Any child of Abraham who did not carry the sign of the covenant would be cut off from the covenant that God had made with this people. Every child who was circumcised and a child of Abraham, by lineage, would have his part in this everlasting covenant. And so again, we see the appropriation of the covenant, not by works, but by faith. That as you, in faith, do something that could in no way earn you any favor, earn you anything, any merit, but as, as they align themselves with that promise through circumcision, they would thus enter into it. And so we see that the promises are intended to be tied to the physical lineage of Abraham, right? The, 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 the promise, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Circumcision was intended to be given to the physical lineage of Abraham. And the conditions of this sign of the covenant were that when you entered into this covenant, you would receive the land, specifically the land. The promise of the land is tied into Abraham's physical seed, eternal. That's what we see in Scripture. And this is going to become more important, particularly as we seek to understand the Christian's relationship to these covenants. Now, chronologically, the next covenant that we find in God's kingdom program is the Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant given to the nation on Mount Sinai, beginning with the Ten Commandments and continuing with the rest of the law, which we can read in Exodus and Leviticus. The Mosaic Covenant is unique in this list, in that it is the only of the five kingdom covenants which was conditional in nature. And this is for a very important reason, which we will explore as we continue in Exodus 19, we see God announce this covenant with Israel. He says in verses 5 and 6, 
Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God asks for the nation, the nation of Israel, which he had redeemed from Egypt, on the basis of the fact that he had redeemed them, he asked for their obedience. And he says, if you will obey me in turn, I will give you a special position in the world as my people. I will give you a special position as peculiar with me above all the people of the earth. The children of Israel accepted these terms, and so they initiated a covenant transaction. Now notice what you don't see in this. You don't see salvation, right? You see God say, you'll be a special people. I will, I will make you peculiar unto me. We read the primary terms of this covenant in Exodus 20, terms which we now call the Ten Commandments. Those are the primary terms of the covenant. From Exodus 20 to 23, we read the conditions of this covenant. Someday read them as if it were a covenant and the conditions thereof. And at the end of this covenant, just like the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant was sealed with blood. In Exodus 24, verses 6 through 8, we read this. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant. He wrote down the law. He took the book of it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all of these words. So he reads the conditions, the people agree to the conditions, and then he seals that agreement with blood. The covenant was sealed. And so now we must understand that the Mosaic covenant did nothing, nothing to override any of the unconditional promises which God made to Abraham and to his seed. The Mosaic covenant was not intended to supersede or to override anything that God had promised to Abraham. It was not given as a means of redemption. It was not given to redeem the people. It was given to an already redeemed people, right? They'd already gone through the Red Sea. They'd already been redeemed from Egypt. The Mosaic covenant was not intended to redeem them. It was intended to be the conditions upon which the redeemed people live. The law saved no one. It never did. It never could. And it was never intended to. It didn't function this way, and indeed it cannot function this way. So the Mosaic law served many purposes, but all of which were to give the seed of Abraham temporary access to the blessings of the covenant until such time as the fullness of the covenant could be realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the law couldn't fulfill its purpose properly. And that's not because the law was inherently flawed, but because you and I are inherently flawed. The law ended up serving not as a framework of a faith life, but rather to show man just how far he falls short of the faith life. It was intended to be given to a redeemed people so that they could follow the Lord. But it actually ended up showing the people just how disinterested they were in following the Lord. It made provision for the faith life, 
but it revealed something else entirely. It showed man how guilty he was before God. But what the law could not do and did not do, where the law did fall short, is that it provided no means for that guilt to be removed. No means for that guilt to be completely taken care of, only covered, only temporarily atoned. So the purposes of the Mosaic Covenant, as we read of them in the New Testament, to make man guilty before God, we see that in Romans chapter 3, chapter 5, as a schoolmaster to guide men to Christ, Romans 8 and Galatians 3, to prove Israel's love for God, to, to test their love, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 23, to separate Israel from other nations, to make them distinct, Exodus 19. To reveal God's character. Deuteronomy 6, Hosea 6, Micah 6. The covenant of God given to Abraham was unconditional, but just like Abraham had, men needed to enter into that covenant by faith. The Mosaic law was intended to guide them into this faith, giving them physical substance to the concept of faith, giving them something to hang on to, to say, this is how I please God. So the nation would exercise faith in God. In that faith, they would obey the Mosaic law, and God would bless them, not for obeying the law, but for the faith that drove them to obey the law. Does that make sense? And if all of this sounds familiar to what we have in Christ, indeed it is, of course, the law had this notable insufficiency, though, that it couldn't deal with the wicked heart of man. It couldn't make man want to let down. The insufficiencies of the law, as revealed in the New Testament, are these. The law cannot justify. The law cannot make us legally right with God. The law cannot bring men to the maturity of the faith. It cannot bring us unto Christ because we can't attain unto the standard. The law fosters bondage and guilt. The law makes us feel guilt, condemnation. The law cannot cleanse the conscience. Even if the blood could atone for the sin, it couldn't deal with your own. It couldn't deal with the heart. These insufficiencies were intended to demonstrate the natural need for something more. It proved that man would not, even under the promise of blessing, submit himself to the kingdom authority of God. It revealed the potential that was in the kingdom. It showed God's capacity to bless, God's desire to bless, but it also showed man's incapacity to do what is necessary to receive that blessing. And as we consider the concept here, progressive revelation, God gives this unconditional promise, and then he gives the Mosaic Law, and the Mosaic Law is this access to faith, but it falls short not because of the law, but because of man. Do you see what God's doing? God's showing that man has a problem that needs to be solved. And he's showing that man can't solve that problem in himself. The third covenant, and this will be the last one that we inspect today, the Palestinian covenant found in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Before we come to the solution to the problem that the law presents, there are other covenants, two other ones which must be understood. One more we'll cover this evening. The third covenant, and the final one, is called the Palestinian Covenant. The language is perhaps insufficient today to describe the nature of this covenant because of the issues of the day. 
We call it the Palestinian Covenant, but today the, the nation of Palestine is a Muslim nation whose avowed purpose is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. When we speak of a Palestinian covenant, we are not talking about the nation of Palestine as it exists today. Palestine is another name for the land of Canaan. And the focus of this third covenant that God made was that particular land. It was the focus of, of God to focus in on the land promise that he gave to Abraham. And so it's sometimes called the Palestinian covenant. Sometimes it's simply called uh, the land covenant or something to that effect. We'll call it a, a either or, Palestinian covenant, land covenant. We're talking about a covenant that God made in Deuteronomy 29 and 30 regarding the land that of the land of Canaan. And we know it's a second covenant. It's not an extension of the Mosaic covenant because we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, And thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thy heart and with all thy soul, that the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from the nations, from all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the utmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecute thee, and thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord, and do all his commandments which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, in the fruit of thy land, for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in in this book of the law, and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. I didn't read here Deuteronomy 29, and Deuteronomy 29 verse 1 specifically says that this is a separate covenant, a covenant different than the covenant that was given at Mount Sinai. The conditions of this covenant, the seven milestones of this covenant, we read in Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10 are these that the nation would be scattered throughout all the nations for their sin. That there would be a repentance regarding this covenant following their scattering. That God would gather um, the nation of Israel from their scattering. He would restore the people to the land. Israel as a nation would be, receive a new heart. They'd be converted. That God would curse the enemies of Israel and that God would bless the nation greatly. And notice as we consider this separate covenant, God tells them that they would continue to disobey to the extent that they would be removed from the land and scattered. Isn't that interesting? That God specifically promises to the nation of Israel 
you will be you will disobey and you will be scattered now if you know your biblical history we talked about it just briefly this morning Israel was first removed from the land in mass when Babylon took them into captivity for those 70 years however they weren't scattered among the nations at that time were they there was no scattering they moved as a nation to Babylon and then whoever wanted to go back got to go back they weren't dispersed in fact we did not see any true dispersal of the nation of Israel until 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple Israel ceased to exist and they went throughout the Roman Empire and that is when the Jews truly dispersed for the first time from that time onward the Jews have been a scattered people haven't they only now in the past 70 years or so having even had a nation again to which to go and so we see that the last 2,000 years of history have been condition number one of that promise that they would be scattered throughout the nations for their sin only condition number one has been fulfilled in these last 2,000 years but there's coming a time when conditions 2 through 7 will take place when there will be a, a repentance regarding this covenant and they'll want to come back to the land. We're seeing that happen already, right? Number two is happening right now. That Jews are heading en masse back to Israel. That they are repenting regarding the fact that that is their land and they want to be in it. And God says that that would happen. That they would be gathered from all the nations of their scattering and they would desire to come back to the land and that God would allow them to come back to the land. And then following this, following this restoration, uh, he says that the nation of Israel will be converted, that he will give the nation a new heart. We know when this will happen. The scriptures tell us that this will happen at the end of the seven years of tribulation, when Jesus Christ will return, and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and they shall weep for him. They will believe on him. Now at this point, I would like to give you some perspective. There are many today, as we spoke of earlier, who believe that the church has replaced national Israel in some form or fashion so that all of the promises which God made to Israel as a nation have been assumed by the church and that the nation of Israel is no longer a part of God's plan. But there's a huge inconsistency in interpretation when we consider God's promise here in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Scattering and judgment for sin are a part of God's promise to this Israel. And then a regathering, right? Scattering, regathering, circumcision of heart, blessing. To this day, not one group, whether that's national Israel or the church, has received the promises of that land, right? Of the blessing. The church of Christ is a body of Holy Spirit and twelve believers, the moment one accepts Jesus as his Savior, he's ushered into the church and he becomes a child of God. From that point forward, the Bible tells us we are in Christ, complete. We have no spot, we have no wrinkle, we have no such thing. God's church would never be scattered for its sin, for in Christ we are already in the holies perfect. God's church would never need a regathering in repentance. Yes, we can sin, but we're not treated according to our sin. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
the law is complete in Christ, sin is conquered in Christ, for the church to go through some sort of collective chastening for sin is to say that God will collectively chasten his spotless bride in Christ. It's inconsistent with everything the Bible teaches about the nature of the church to say that the church will somehow receive the promises of God in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, which includes a scattering for sin and a, and a, a, a regathering in repentance. Can you begin to see those inconsistencies? At this point, to fit it all in, we'll have to say that Israel, if, if we were to fit all of that in to Israel, all of these promises to Israel, we'd have to say that they experienced all of those promises prior to Christ, but they didn't. And in order to make it seem like they did, we'd need to deeply spiritualize the text. We'd have to spiritualize what it means that they were scattered. Spiritualize what it means that they were regathered. And the next thing you know, there's nothing left of God's promises but a bunch of mystical code words given to a nation for some false sense of security where those promises that are given to them would actually be transferred to the mystical body called the church. And that doesn't really make sense to me. I don't even know if I explained it well enough for it to make sense to you. But what makes sense is that God made promises to Israel. He made promises to Abraham. One of those promises was personal. One of those was national. One of those was universal. That God gave Abraham his personal promise to bless him. That God gave Abraham his national promise. That as an extension of that national promise comes this Deuteronomy 29 and 30 covenant, which, by the way, has no conditions placed upon it. And within that covenant, God says, I will scatter you. I will regather you. I will circumcise your heart. And then I will bless you as I promised to do in the past. And the primary reason this makes sense to me is because this is what the Bible says. And so we find in the Lamb Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant, an elaboration of God's promise to Abraham concerning the land of Canaan. That God promised Abraham the land, and the Palestinian Covenant is a more specific promise to the nation of Israel about how that land will be given to Abraham and to his seed. Like with any unconditional blessing which was tied into the conditional covenant uh, of Moses, uh, the Mosaic covenant, the conditional covenant of the law, in a temporary way, so too the unconditional promise of the land is tied into the Mosaic covenant in a temporary way. In other words, let me explain it this way. You see there the little dots going to the Mosaic covenant. Well, temporarily, from the time of Israel's institution to the time of Christ, the blessing, the land, and we'll see the seed are tied into the Mosaic Covenant. That as Israel exercises her collective faith, they receive those covenants. But they can't do it. They can't exercise the faith necessary to align themselves with God. And so what we're going to see next week is God is going to remove the Mosaic Covenant by fulfilling it in Christ. So that when we accept Christ, we fulfill the Mosaic Covenant, which means we enter in by faith into everything that God has asked us to do, and thus the other covenants can be fulfilled. Because remember, as we saw in the Abrahamic Covenant, though it was an unconditional covenant, Abraham could not accept it or receive it until he received it by faith. Your head's swimming, that's okay.
Next week we'll put it all together when we get to the new covenant, and we'll also we'll talk about the divinity covenant. Now, this sermon and, and the next two sermons, they're intended to be information rich. For better or for worse, I hope that the information came to you. Again, I, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable doing this. I don't like doing it regularly, and I don't do it regularly. But when we get to the end of next week, I think you're going to have this rich understanding of what God's doing, what he did with the law, why the law was there, and how all the covenants tie into God's kingdom program. So hang tight with me one more week. And I think all of it, it's like a you know a puzzle when you get all the edge pieces put in and you still can't see it. And you get some of the dark areas and you still can't see it. And then you start to fill in the other stuff and it starts to kind of become a picture. Right now we've done the edges. We've got some of the blotches in there, but, but it hasn't become a picture yet. So, so be patient with me. Be patient with yourself. We'll get to it next week. But where does that leave us for today? Well, I don't know where it leaves you. There's no definitive application to this study until we finish the study. We stopped halfway through, so it would be a disservice to draw our minds to the conclusion. But as we close today, let me do so with this thought. We just learned from the Palestinian covenant that God prophesied of Israel's disobedience, apostasy, and scattering among the nations for their sin. Let this sink in for a moment. God, knowing his promises to the nation, knew that they would be ignored, knew that God would be rejected and despised by the people whom he loved and redeemed. So much so that he prophesied that they would be scattered for their sin. So he knew it was going to happen. And yet, God loved and redeemed them. that God knew when he gave them this covenant that they would reject it, that they would stray from it, that they would want it. And you know what he did anyway? He redeemed them, poured out his love upon them. And when we read in Ezekiel 16, at the end of that, God says, I'll remember you. And when we read in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, what does God say? I'll bring you back. I'll circumcise your heart. Blessed. You know, we as humans tend to be so impatient. When things work out, we kind of scuttle the idea and move on to the next one pretty quickly. You know, God could have scuttled us long ago. He could have scuttled Israel long ago. He could have given up. He could have, as some believe today, just cast Israel aside as dirty rags and started over again. But he didn't. And we know that he didn't because God's word says that he didn't. And this is not just hopeful for Israel, is it? This is hopeful for us. Doesn't it fill your heart with joy, wonder, and love for the God who would be so patient as to endure such rebellion against him and yet still determined to love and to bless and to regather, to restore? And when you think of that, God that you serve, the God who would be so patient and kind in the midst of sin, does that make you want to love him back? Does that make you want to serve him for all that he's done for you? See, that's the intent. In so many ways and for so many reasons, these truths ought to take us outside of ourselves and cause us to glory in the God of ourselves.
salvation. I know it was a lot of information. It's not, sometimes hard to see the forest for the trees when I give you that much stuff. But when you see what God is actually doing, when you see his faithfulness, you can't help but understand that God is not fickle like you and I. He isn't fickle and vindictive. He, he's patient. He's kind. The word is long-suffering. And if we miss this, if we miss God's plan with Israel, if we miss God's overarching kingdom program, then we miss some pretty incredible points in God's character. And we dare not miss them, because in them we find hope and joy and peace, which make the struggles of this life hopeful, joyful, and peaceful, which is what we all long for. So as all of this kind of sinks in and processes, I know I gave you a lot. Don't allow the information that you're soaking to cause you to lose sight of what God is doing. And as you consider what God is doing for Israel, and as we finalize that next week and we see our part in it, let's be encouraged because our part in it is pretty special. And God has some great plans for us. Let's close with prayer. Lord, I thank you for the uh, attention of God's people. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take this um, this teaching and would encourage uh, the hearts of God's people. I know it was a lot. I know it was teaching. Um, but I pray that the information would be extremely beneficial, particularly as we wrap it all up next week. Uh, may we go now with your blessing into this week. And may you be honored with how we use it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The covenant and he